stories from around the corner and around the country. You're listening to All the Best. Proudly supported by the Art Gallery of New South Wales. You're listening to All the Best from FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Madhura Prakash. Before we get into this week's stories, I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that I'm recording from stolen Gadigal land and pay my respect to Gadigal elders past and present and also recognise that the area where FBI Radio is situated, Redfern, has long been a place of storytelling, strength, resistance and resilience for First Nations communities. This week, we're bringing you more stories from our series of audio features from Debris Magazine Issue 3, The Urge to Know. You can read these pieces and others by buying a copy at debrismag.com. An emulsion is a mixture of two liquids that are usually immiscible, that is, unable to be mixed, like oil and vinegar. An emulsion can be beautiful or functional, but at the same time slightly wrong, and in some cases, like when milk is split, off pudding. This week's stories bring you this contradiction. Our first story is from 2023 Dal Stevens Award winner and runner-up for the Peter Carey Short Story Award, Jumana Abdu. In it, she presents a dark satire of love, an emulsion of aspiration and envy. The chief problem was that I had grown too comfortable in my solitude when love struck like apoplexy and made it incumbent upon me to marry. We met while in attendance of a postgraduate welcome dinner. I was miserable and tolerating, but as a general rule back then I felt I was always having to tolerate things, especially myself, as I was deep down in a place sheltered from the baton of auto-policing so much chafing against the confines of my own skin, so barred from an unmasking that would, in the instant of exposure, set me free, even if lethally. The moment I saw him, I went under a spell of fear and envy. He was as dark as me. His hair was short and wooly, his beard close-cropped, his eyes black and scintillating. A blonde man made a poorly worded remark about secularist liberty and the necessary collateral damage of women in hijab being banned from public schools in some European countries, and a few well-meaning faces at the table flicked an anxious dart towards me then sped just as quickly away. And then I saw him, slouched back, watching, not intervening, sharing with me a private irony. He seemed to be saying, you're the only one like me. I found him extremely agitating. I liked him right away. I found him disorienting. His custom was to take an extra beat of translation between the reception of a question and the delivery of an answer. No one else at that table would have made the effort of distinguishing between particulars. They would have sufficed it to say that he was from the Middle East. Oh, but I knew all about his particulars. I understood that his delay in reply indicated a deliberation which lengthened in proportion to the esteem in which he held a person's intellect, so I quickly recalibrated my own timing with the measured beats of what went, translating, 
interpreting, comprehending. But it was a more insidious thing. It was like the malediction that struck Ernest Shackleton down at first sight of the Antarctic, the kind of distance that I knew I was to spend my whole life crossing. Over the next year, we sized each other up in friendly company. He was exacting, steadfast, discriminating. He was so much like me, but more how I wanted to be. I was a hologram of myself compared. I too was a descendant of his scorched Levant territory, by lineage at least. In other words, what he had been born into I was born imitating. It was also like that in other ways. Our friends took quarterly trips up to a private beach on the far north coast, two hours' drive from the university. The times he came along, I could never enjoy myself. I would sit with the women and watch him from the shore while he slipped in and out of the waves like a whale fin. At the end of the year, he went for a particularly long swim so far out that I lost sight of him for a moment and began to panic just as though I had lost sight of myself, but then he reappeared in the froth glided landwards, glistening in sea foam, strode right over to me. When he asked, I didn't hesitate. We sanctified the chokehold with a diamond ring. A certificate changed nothing. I cut myself off from the world so I could reinvent my idea of solitude to include him. I thought we could obliterate the distance between us by way of extreme mutual retreat, but even in our seclusion I never learned him. We remained discreet. Often I tried to preempt him by imagining what he would say. Then I would dismiss my first assumption, then dismiss even the second and third, until I lighted upon the very last thing I expected. But even employing this method, he would manage to take a route I had not conceived. One afternoon I made him a margarine tea. I brought it to the lounge room and placed it on the table beside him. I expected him to thank me, so then I told myself he would probably be a critical ingrate. The teacup sat down with a clink. I withdrew to the opposite couch and pretended to read. I felt him deliberate. Always that slow crawl of translation, always the ice tundra between, and I waited for him to move, to reach towards heat, to touch his fingers to the porcelain, to lower his mouth so that the whiskers of his face might be moistened by the steam, but his abstinence was so severe it burned with what escaped my understanding, much as I wished to internalize it. I trained my eyes on words swimming. At last he stood. He crossed the room and, with dark hands unfurling, laid slow judgment upon me. My husband's job took to sending him for months at a time overseas. In the few years we had been together, my agitation had grown steadily impossible to sate, so I expected his absence, and my return to solitude, would come as a reprieve. The first time, as we said our goodbyes, I caught my own relief reflected back at me in the flare of his black eyes, and I realized, suddenly, that as terribly as he had breached my aloneness, I had effected the same rupture. I hid a grimace of pleasure. With this revelation, he left me. All night, I waited for solitude to reclaim me. I waited hours on the edge of release. There was something of a possession inside me. 
Dawn blushed, I rose. I went to the bathroom mirror and gazed upon a foreign body. I was the body of a wife, and long did I look into her mask. At first I kept to my side, then I looked at myself in his mirror. I repeated this a few times before settling in front of his half, drawn to a shimmer in the glass that could not be appreciated in mine, no matter how I tried. I became aware of Solitude's soft-falling footstep approaching from behind. If I had spent the night in Diplopia, now at last my visions were on the cusp of converging, a complete unity instead of two halves which were hollow, fantastic. But what the image lacked instead suffered me a dysphoric twinge, and on impulse I took a pair of scissors from the cupboard and cut my curls to the level of my mouth, long enough to tuck behind a burning ear. When my husband returned home many months hence, his hair had lengthened to sit just above the corner of his chin. I suffered a thrill. We reached for each other, narrowing that crevasse between. He said the last thing I could have expected. You haven't changed, he told me. And all over again, what fullness his arrival had delivered was matched quickly by a feeling of having my assets all seized. I liked to wear a hijab in public, but I knew what lay underneath. I began to feel like a fool's imitation of him, which corroborated no one's desires for me. At dinners, people still threw me their well-meaning anxieties while he was left free to laugh privately. I was the token lamb. People put on a show for fear that a misstep might send me bleating. I understood I was a symbol. My own imagination was limited by what was possible for others to imagine. People registered him as a walking, talking, thinking being, and then me beside him. And as soon as they noticed me, I heard a thousand steel curtains slamming shut over their eyes and it became impossible to convince them. I am just like him, but he has stolen himself from me. The next time he went away, I did not wait. I went straight to the mirror and cut my hair. Then again at dawn, the old insufficiency ceased, yawning and creaking. In a sinking shudder, a great hole opened up in the unoccupied half of the bed, and I leapt up off the mattress, gaping at what had almost swallowed me alive. I found myself stumbling back against my husband's wardrobe. I opened it and hid myself inside. The doors closed. I was swimming in an amniotic dark. My tremor was subsumed by the smell of cotton and linen. He had an old man's style. With experimental wariness, I took a sleeve between my fingers and let it run like silk. I shed my nightgown and slid into his trousers. I stretched his tawny argyles over my calves. I buttoned up a shirt and pulled on a cashmere sweater. I folded the cuff on his sleeve. I buckled his wristwatch. I slipped on his oxfords with ease. Then I stepped out and appreciated an exquisite feeling. It was back too soon, and my solitude was once again cleaved. However, I had now latched onto a goal. I needed only to wait for another period of reprieve. He too appeared anxious. One morning he suddenly went clean-shaven. I joined him at the bathroom sink. I watched as he creamed his bristle. He coasted a blade over his chin. He brought water to his skin. He pressed a towel over his face. 
Underneath, his cheek revealed a delicate flush so much like my own. It was uncanny. Then I caught him looking from his reflection to mine, with the trepidation of an informant unsure what secrets they had just given away. One of us was in danger of exposure. I was glad for my life the next time he left me. This time, I was motivated. I oiled and combed my hair, I dabbed his Arab musk on my neck, and I hissed at the sting. I slipped into his clothes, put on his Turkish jade ring, fastened his shoes, hid my hair under one of his flat caps, and left the house. I did only the things he would do. I adopted his shoegazing stroll and thought about what I imagined he would be thinking. I met with his old college friends and enjoyed the offense of their openness. I leaned back into my chair, gave off his warm reticence, and they felt free to hand me the keys to the city of their honesty. Knowing my husband, I reserved comment. I interpreted, translated, deliberated, coming to conclusions which he only could have shared with me privately. Then I began to miss myself. I, he, had taken myself from him, me. My next stop was the woman to whom my husband had been previously affianced. She worked at a local cafe. She seemed both pained and pleased to see him. As she recovered, she motioned for him to wait around the side, where she would give us his order. I was happy to obey her, as my husband would have been. Her beauty embarrassed me. Her eye was clear, sharp, lonely. There was the habitual posture of withdrawal in her face which I felt yield and began to unfurl with eagerness and silence towards me. Later, I meditated on her in the alley by the side of the building, under a leaking vent, the residue of missed opportunities. I only resented myself for having kept my husband from a superior thing. By keeping it from him, I had also kept it from myself, and I wished I had been him much earlier so that I might have held on to her instead of me. But then I was grateful that he was himself, otherwise he would never have lost her, and I would never have found him, and all the things that he had. By that stage in my dissension, it was beyond me to read on my mask before his arrival. I had outgrown myself, or perhaps I was tired. I sat in his chair, dressed as him, dressed for him, dressed for myself, and waited for him to step through the front door which he did, looking younger and slimmer and with more of my flush in his cheeks. There was no mystery or shock when he saw me. He at once gleaned the ultimatum. After the stillness of receiving a terminal decree, he undertook a vulture's route around me, but he circled only an effigy of his own corpse. I was voltaic with terror and bitterness. When he slowed to a halt at my feet and his breath rumbled with heat, and his dark brow glowered down at me over his chin, I was sunk so low into his chair that my head came to the level of his thigh. Then I stood, and we were the same height. We were both grieved and so angry. Still, I had no clue as to what he would do. He pulled off his own hat and thrusted it down over my hair in a gesture of hurry. All he said was, let's go back to the sea. We were breathless after we rushed to the car. The drive was solemn, as respectful as the silence between an executioner and their ward at the sunset guillotine. 
we arrived quickly. The beach was empty. Dusk snuffed the sky to lavender and tangerine. We slimmed down and plunged into the shock of the water tumbling. I saw his dark limbs and my own, two black bears in a rapid. At last we came up to breathe. Like piranhas we charged the enemy. In retrospect, it is difficult to say who tried to put him under, only that long ago we had severed each other's solitude and discovered that the only chance at reclamation was complete and absolute integration. I had been right about the great distance I would spend my life crossing, but there was something in the distortion of our limbs beneath the water, the blurring of the impermeable, the pleasure of that trespass, which had been lost to fear and gained in its place, the loneliness of mankind from one half of its chains. He warred against me in the swell of last-ditch suffocation. I responded with a violence of my own. The water got in our mouths. Poseidon swamped us with a deluge, now operatic. Reverse meiosis was impossible. We saw it through the last word of solitude, approaching some horizon of grief. It was so close. A second later, on the brink of pressure beyond what either of us could bear, a terrible light came piercing. Peace bloomed. A new elegy. In what was left, there was the solitude again, pronounced and more whole. That story was written by Jumana Abdu and read by her friend and collaborator Amalia Fernandez. Sound design was by Chiara Minotto. You can find more of Jumana's work at jumanaabdu.com. Have you met the love of your life through a mutual love of FBI? Been listening to the station all day, every day since 2003? This year for FBI's 20th birthday, all the best want stories about how FBI Radio has impacted you. We're looking for any kind of novel, weird, or exciting experience that involves FBI. Reach out by emailing production manager Phoebe at pm at allthebestradio.com. Our next story is the sharing of a recipe. Enjoy the unexpected moments that lie in the warm embrace of a lentil tahini stew. Lentil Tahini Street by Snack Syndicate. One can begin with a large pot with the promise of plenty. This recipe is as old as us, which is to say it is as old as our love. When we got together, we each had a variation of this stew. Immediately, they joined forces. At some point early on, we began adding tahini. Tahini is its defining feature. In our household, tahini is pretty central. We put it on toast, in porridge, as one of three ingredients in almond meal and maple syrup biscuits and as an unctuous little sauce on stir-fries. We use it in hummus, of course, but tahini also features in a thousand sauces we make, 
combined with other delights like miso or tamari or garlic or ginger or lemon and so on. We have a hat that says tahini and we fight over it. Our cat's middle name is sesame. You get it. To make this stew, take your pick of a lentil. Green, brown or pew. Don't pick red. That's the only rule. Red lentils are for other soups, stews and curries. All delicious in their own right. But they will not do for this. Perhaps you want to rinse slightly more lentils than you need to plan for an extra seat at the table, a mouth that needs filling, a container of leftovers that will nourish your body as it labours the following day. There's no limit on how many lentils, but remember they sort of magically multiply as they get reanimated by heat and liquid. The more you have, the more diligence you must apply in ensuring flavour gets into those lentil bods. Heat your pot and toss a few cumin and caraway seeds into it. When the warm and earthy aroma enters your nostrils, add a liberal glug of olive oil. Now throw in some chopped onions and let them sweat till the crunch has disappeared and they are all sweetness. It goes without saying, some garlic, chopped fine or coarse, depending on your mood. And some chilli, fresh or dried, never goes astray. While your alliums are sublimating, chop some tomatoes. You can make this with tomatoes or without, canned or fresh, with lots or little. We generally like to follow the seasons, pretend for a moment that the logistical revolution never happened, so use fresh tomatoes in spring or summer. Before you add any tomatoes, add a couple of teaspoons each of ground cumin and smoked paprika, plus a pinch of cayenne pepper. The stew's flavour profile is infinitely modular, so feel free to play around. A dash of allspice and a hint of cinnamon, for example, will send the stew in a different, yet pleasing direction. Next, add your tomatoes and let them cook over a low heat until they break down. Add a splash of water if they need a little lubrication. The trick is to let each of these steps take the time they need. Don't rush. Once your tomatoes have cooked down into a thick paste, add the lentils. Now you will need liquid, enough to comfortably cover your lentils. We often just use water. Every now and then we will throw in little bouillon cubes. On rare occasions, we have a dose of home-cooked veggie stock on hand. And if that happens to be the case for you, use it. Lentils are thirsty little suckers. So keep an eye on your stew. You may need to add a little more liquid as you cook. Don't be afraid to do it, but check your seasoning as you go. And most importantly, remember to layer that salt. Cook on a lowish heat until the lentils yield, their jackets halfway off their round shoulders. When they get to this point, turn off the heat. Cook them any less and their toothsome cores will rough up your guts. Overcook them and they will become so undifferentiated that the joy of subtle thresholds will be withheld upon eating. Okay, now the tahini. If you add it straight into the stew, weird things will happen. So you will need to spoon a few dollops into a bowl, add a small amount of water and then stir, stir, stir with a fork or mini whisk. The tahini will go through all sorts of phases. 
get tight, get thick, get wormy, get chunky. Persevere through all these phases and add more and more water as necessary. Eventually you will get a pale, smooth, runny paste. That's what you want. And you'll want to wait until the heat is off. Do not cook the stew with the tahini in it. Stir the tahini through and let the stew become thick and glossy, just slightly milky. Serve with a glug of olive oil, a sprinkle of rough chopped parsley or some other greenery. God, lemon sorrel would be amazing. If you do dairy, a hunk of feta might be nice. But what is actually quite key are some toasted seeds. Sometimes we toast pine nuts if we're lucky to have those greasy, funky little guys on hand. More often we toast pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds, which are delicious. Occasionally we get so excited we do seeds, we do the seeds in a little olive oil, salt, smoked paprika in a frying pan, and that is God tier seed crumble. Whatever you choose, think about that crunch. It's amazing to have a little hunk of bread with this dish toasted or not. It's also quite good with a boiled or poached egg on top if you are feeling like some extra protein. If you get to the next day and the lentils have soaked up extra liquid, you can think about putting some in a jaffle or spreading it over toast. The most important thing, this stew will fill many friends and comrades. Lentils go far. It's warm and warming, hearty and chunky, smooth and silky, wet and sloppy, filled with surprise and topped with countless goodies. It's food for partying, for toiling, for nourishing. Put that large pot on the table and pass the bowls around. Eat it the fuck up. Lentil Tahini Stew, a text by Snack Syndicate, was published in Debris Magazine, The Urge to Know, and we recorded this audio in our kitchen on Sunday, the 4th of June. We listened to DJ Plead and T. Morimoto's outfit, Poison, while we cooked. We had some contributions from the cat, M.A. Sesame, and we had the title delivered by Vinnie Brooks. That story was produced by Snack Syndicate, a creative duo comprised of Andrew Brooks and Astrid LaRange. Find more of their work on their website, snacksyndicate.net. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we make these stories and pay our respects to elders past and present. All the best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land in association with SIN and 3RRR on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung lands and 8CCC on Arande and Waramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mal Chun and Phoebe Adler-Ryan is our production manager. Our social media producer is Isabella Lee. Patrick McKenzie is our community coordinator. Shining Bird composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Art Gallery of New South Wales and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find our full archive of more than 500 episodes at allthebestradio.com.
I'm Madhura Prakash. Thanks for listening.